Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys, uh, welcome back to the Equipping and Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I have my friend, Andy. Andy, welcome back to the Equipping and Grace podcast, brother. Dave, I'm excited to be with you. I can't wait to talk today about this topic. Yeah, it's always, we always seem to have such great conversations, so I'm really excited. Uh, can uh, you catch us up on what's been happening in your life, marriage, ministry? What are you working on ministry project-wise and, and those types oh. of things, brother? Well, I'm called by God to be a pastor of a church. I've been here. I'm in my 24th year at First Baptist Durham, and there's no congregation that I'd rather uh, pastor than this one. I love being here. Uh, we're in a very, I feel like a very strategic area, a high tech area, area of education with Duke, UNC, Chapel Hill, NC State nearby, some research hospitals nearby, uh, high tech uh, booming area. And people are pouring in here to live here. It's one of the more desirable areas in our country to live. So that gives us uh, opportunities to see lost people come to faith in Christ. Uh, and so just for me, I'm called week after week to um, systematic exposition of God's word and try to be faithful to feed the flock. And we also see people come into Christ. I'm excited about that. My wife and I have been married for 33 years. We have five kids. We're blessed. Uh, there's no there's, there's no woman that I'd rather be married to. She's a delight and a joy uh, to me. And I'm just grateful. And our five kids are, by God's grace, walking with the Lord. And I'm thankful for that. So mm, Wonderful. Wonderful to hear. Praise God. Well, can you uh, tell us about this new book, The Glory Now Revealed, What We'll Discover About God in Heaven, why you wrote it, and how you hope it'll be received? Yeah. Uh, so basically the premise of the book is that heaven is all about the glory of God. That's what it's about. So all the other views that we have uh, that are lesser than that, that, that topic uh, are unworthy of our meditations on heaven. It's about God's glory. But what is God's glory? I think it's the radiant display of the attributes of God. Uh, attributes are our answers to the question, uh, what is God like or what kind of God do we love and worship? Uh, so attributes like God's sovereignty, God's omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, his holiness, justice, mercy, wrath, um, wisdom, all of these are attributes of God. And I believe heaven will be an eternal education in the glory of God. And I use the language of education because I came to realize in my studies that though we will be glorified in heaven, we will never be deified. We will not become God. And because we will never be God, that means we will never be omniscient. And what that means is we will forever be able to learn new things about God. And God alone is the infinite topic that can engage our resurrected minds for all eternity. And God will forever be showing us new things, new aspects of his glory. And that makes heaven a very exciting place for us. Now, my book focuses on God educating us on the past. When we get to heaven, there will be 6,000 years of redemptive history that he will then be able to educate us on what he did uh, throughout every day, every month, year, decade, every century of his actions to save his people in every culture and every setting. We will be studying the great works of God for all eternity. It's not all we'll do in heaven, but we will be doing that. Mm. Wonderful. Wonderful. That's great. I really enjoyed reading it. I thought it was very well written as always and very helpful. Um, so Praise God. Appreciate it. Amen. 
Amen. Well, why are we uh, so eager to look into the future, brother? I really believe that it's essential to how God made us. I think we are made to be forward-looking people. I was thinking about this as we, uh, my associate pastor, Andy Wynn, and I were driving to an event recently, a conference that I was speaking at. I was just thinking about my book, and we're talking about heaven. And I was thinking uh, about driving and just the road ahead. And we're just we're made to see what is yet to come, what is coming. We were, I think we're essentially made to be hope-filled. And hope is all about what hasn't come yet. And so we're always thinking about what is yet to come, what hasn't come yet. And, and so therefore, I think it's natural for us to think about the future. And it says in Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. That's a great uh, segue into my book. It's like, well, in heaven, we're going to learn more and more about what God did from beginning to end. But the fact is, God has set eternity in our hearts. And so we're essentially forward looking. If we were convinced, Dave, ultimately, if we were convinced that all of the best things of our lives were in the past, wouldn't that be depressing? Wouldn't it be hard for us to just even continue? Um, we are made to move ahead toward good things in the future. That's how we're wired. And so we're, we're, that's why I think we think so much about heaven and about the future. That's, that's, so, that's so good. I don't think I have anything to add. <laughs> you, you took everything that I, I might say. I, I, I think that that is, I think that's spot on. You know, we're, we're our, the hard drive of our hearts, how we're, how we're made. You know, obviously we're marred by sin, but uh you know at the moment of birth but at the, at the same time we we have that desire for for heaven for eternity and we'll go seeking whatever else that we can find uh to satisfy that and what i mean uh, uh we we know that you know we're our our vision first corinthians uh one tells us is is darkened by you know sin so you know that's not a natural but, but the hard drive of our hearts is to is to pursue etern eternity and uh, that's why people go and and search for meaning and value and worth and and beliefs in other religions. And what they don't realize is that the one thing that one thing that you really need is the one thing that you actually reject. It's it's kind of ironic, but it's also true, you know. So yeah, amen. Also, Hebrews eleven says faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So essential to our faith is things we haven't received yet, things that are yet to come, and knowing that we will most certainly get them. So I, I look on hope is a a feeling or a sense in the soul that the future is bright based on the promises of God. So that's what hope is all about. Yeah, that's really good. Why have uh, why have so many people developed errant views about what heaven is and what it'll be like? Well, I think. Um, I think we, we just have to start with world religions. Um, so millions of people follow other religions. And so you have to look biblically at the origin of non-Christian religions. And the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians that the sacrifices offered to idols are offered to demons. And so really, Satan and demons are the originators of all the world religions other than Christianity. They are God and goddess impersonators, uh, like Artemis of the Ephesians, you know, and all that. They, they fire up people's affections toward false religions that then become obsolete. Some of them do, like Artemis, nobody worships. Well, I don't know, nobody. There's probably some weird people that do worship Artemis now, but um, you know, that religion fell out like Molech and Baal and all of those Ashtoreth, those are gone, but other religions have come along. And so Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, they all have an answer in terms of the future, the afterlife. And those answers are false. Beyond that, you got just people speculating. You got mythologies, um, you know, dreams and visions that people have, different thoughts. 
And I think that's the source of false information about, about heaven. Yeah. I, I think we can also add to that. It's just, you know, do you believe the Bible to be true or do you not? And if you yeah, don't believe it, if you, yeah, if you don't believe the Bible is true, then you're going to go seeking for new revelation you're going to, like you said, the, the dreams, the visions, the, the, whatever it, it's like, well, uh, has God spoken? Well, the answer yeah. for us is, and, and for the truth is yes. And so we have to believe what, what God said. And if we don't, then we're going to, you know, seek after, you know, heaven. We, we even, I think, see this with books about heaven. You, you have, I think we'll talk about this here in just a little bit, but maybe we'll just talk about it for just a second. But, you know, yeah. you see that about the, the supposed people coming back and coming and returning and, and then they have something to say from God. It's like, well, where's that in the Bible? Like, you yeah. know, um, well, I think you're referring to near death experiences and some of the most popular yeah. books on heaven are based on near death experiences. And so, I mean, before I get into near death experiences, I will just say foundational to my book is the belief in the sufficiency of scripture for every topic. So the Bible is enough to tell us what we need to know now about heaven. Certainly, we're not scratching even the surface of what there can be to know about heaven. But God hasn't told us those things yet. And therefore, I don't think we're supposed to speculate about it. But I do believe that the Bible's told us more than we think it has. And that's the point of my book, is that good sound exegesis and good sound theological methodology of putting two plus two together to equal four, and then putting four plus four together to equal eight, that's how theology works. That's how the doctrine of the Trinity or other doctrines get Put together. You put concepts together that flow from passages of scripture rightly divided. So you look at, at scripture and then you get a full-orbed theology of heaven. I find that it's anemic in many of the systematic theologies. The section on heaven is very small in many systematic theologies. They just haven't really put all the verses together to come up with how dynamic and how exciting heaven will be. That's what my book seeks to do. But you're right. Foundational to it is a belief in the sufficiency of Scripture uh, to tell us what we need to know about heaven. Yeah. So on near, near death experiences, you brought up the topic. I, I guess I would say this. At best, at best, what I would say is I believe those people really had those experiences hmm. at best. At worst, they didn't have those experiences. That would be fraud. So that would be people claiming experiences that they had that they actually never had. And some of these stories have been exposed later as fraudulent. So you have to set those aside. Then there are others that are not fraudulent. I think people really did have those experiences. However, I don't think they're much different than dreams. I mean, suppose suppose someone told you they had an incredible dream about heaven. Well, if you cared about the person, you say, well, tell me about it. And then they tell you the dream. It's like, oh, that's really kind of interesting. Would you then think of it as a certain and valid source of information about heaven? Where in the world do we get that idea? Why would we go from someone's dream or vision to that being a sure and certain source of information about what heaven actually will be like? At that point, then you're into the whole kind of charismatic prophetic movement aspect. Is God still expanding his canon of scriptures? He's still revealing new things to us that are important for us to know, but they're not in the Bible. And for me, as, as a, a believer in the sufficient of scripture, I reject that. I do not look for new prophetic voices to give me new information. So therefore, the near-death experiences are, are in that category for me. I do not think of them as a valid source of information about our heavenly future. Yeah, I think that's, I think that what that does 
what you just did is really important. I hope people picked up on it because you're you're validating the person, but you're not validating the idea. And I think that's really, really important because, you know, you don't want to just shut somebody down and then they're like, what? because then they're what they're going to do is their defensive walls are going to not um, they're just going to come up and they're not going to hear anything else. So what you did was actually really, really helpful in that you you affirm the person just not their ideas and yeah yeah i think that's i think that's really important and just kind of touching on what you just said about the sufficiency of scripture that that right there i mean that that gets to the point of it goes back to the fundamental issue like do we believe the bible or do we not and if we believe the bible as christians even charismatics or pentecostals believe, claim to believe in the authority of scripture then do you actually believe you have to press the fact of the authority of Scripture? Do you actually believe the authority of Scripture? Well, if you believe the authority of Scripture, then we have to believe what Scripture teaches about heaven. Now, like you said, that doesn't minimize whether somebody maybe had a dream or whatever. Like, we don't we don't know. So, you know, we can't we can just say, you know, whatever. But we can go back to Scripture and we can say, OK, did it line up with Scripture? And and, yeah. and I think that's really, really good. Yeah. Um, well, how will our perspective of our earthly life change when we're in heaven? Will we remember much of our lives uh, on earth in heaven? Yeah. So I had to deal with that concept. So I came at it logically. You know, I have a logical mind. I went to MIT. I'm an engineer kind of. So I take everything from a logical point of view. So here, here are the options. When we get to heaven, we will either remember none of our earthly lives, some of our earthly lives, or all of our earthly lives. Those are the options. Logical. All right. So if we remember none of our earthly lives, that would be what I call heavenly amnesia or the heavenly memory wipe. Um, you know, like when you sell your smartphone or your tablet and you don't want any of your financial information, whatever, to still be on it. So you just, you know, they tell you how to wipe it, how to how to wipe it electronically. Right. Well, imagine that happens to our minds. But the fact is that doesn't line up with uh, the existence of identity in heaven. Like uh, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus said that proves resurrection, but it also proves uh, personal identity. Abraham is still Abraham up in heaven. Isaac is still Isaac. Jacob is still Jacob. And that's not just a name. That's a that's a history. It's the Abraham who left Ur the Chaldees and went to the promised land by faith and who had a barren wife and who waited for 25 years until she finally gave birth to Isaac. That Abraham. And Jesus said, many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Well, imagine, Dave, you get to sit next to Abraham in the kingdom of, in the kingdom of heaven at the heavenly feast, right? And you say to him, hi, I'm Dave. And he says, I'm Abraham. But you both have had the memory wipe, right? It's like, what do you do now? It's like, I don't know. Let's eat. <laughs> so you're sitting next to some dude named Abraham, and it doesn't mean anything to you at all. That's not biblical. When on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah showed up talking with Jesus, that was the Moses and the Elijah who had the histories they each had. And they're not the same history. Moses was not Elijah and Elijah is not Moses. They're different people. But it was Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So identity, earthly identity is retained in heaven, including our history. Uh, that we would remember some but not all of our past makes no sense to me. Um, what, what would we forget? Now, I got to three topics in my book that are painful that people very much would like to forget when they get to heaven, right? There are three categories of things from our earthly lives that people want to forget, namely our sins, our sufferings, and the damned, people that we loved on earth that end up in hell. And, you know, we could talk about each of those, but I do believe that there'll be a full memory of all three of those. However, 
I completely reject based on Revelation 21.4 that any of our memories in heaven will cause us any pain or shame or embarrassment at all. We will remember, but they will bring us no pain. It's just the truth of what happened. We will be, Dave, so far beyond concern about our reputation. We'll be so far beyond any of that. We will be so transformed into God-centeredness and into radiant glory ourselves. We're going to shine like the sun. We will have no fear whatsoever to our stories being told because first john 5 says perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with judgment we will have no fear of judgment we'll be like god tell a story i want people to know who i was and how you saved me and what you did and i include uh, the post-conversion sins too all of it was part of the story that i was an imperfect servant of christ who is frequently fearful frequently lazy cowardly uh, that I gave into certain sins from time to time, but you used me anyway. To God be the glory. That's how it's going to be. So I believe that we'll remember everything. And not just the, the word is not just remember. We will learn things we never knew. Things that, that, that happened, but we didn't even know they happened. It's not just a matter of remembering. It's a matter of a backward perspective or retrospect, looking back at what actually happened. God will teach it. Yeah, I think that's really good. I mean, even even in the now, you know, in the already and not yet, you know, we can keep our eyes on Christ and yet he's still coming, you know, and we're still going to to meet him. And so th- what does that what does that do? I mean, Paul says what it does in Second Corinthians or not Second Corinthians, Second Timothy uh, chapter four at the end. You know, he eagerly longs, he says, for the day. What day is he talking about? He's talking about meeting with Christ. He's longing yeah. for the day when he's going to be with his Lord. Which yeah, is- amen. Well, Dave, what I what I sought to do in my book is I, I didn't want to make any assertions that I couldn't prove from Scripture. By the way, I got a, a really uh, encouraging uh, word from a church member a few weeks ago. I'm preaching through the book of Job right now, and I was uh, dealing with a certain aspect of the book of Job. And I and I told him or in the sermon, I said, you know, I I don't want to speculate. This is what I think biblically. This is what possible and all that. Anyway, so he came up afterwards. He said, you never say anything from the pulpit that you can't support from scripture. I said, that's right. I mean, everything I don't want to speculate. So in this book, I want to say, I just made an assertion. We'll remember the past. I've already given you some evidence with the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob material, but I have something like 15 different biblical proofs that we'll remember in heaven, our earthly lives, like the theology of rewards, I mean, rewards, which are clearly taught many places in the Bible, are utterly, completely tied to our earthly experience. Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. All right. So Mm -hmm. we're going to get rewarded in heaven for any abuse we took for the name of Christ here on earth including all the way up to martyrdom, right? All the way up to martyrdom. Well, here's the thing. If we don't remember what the crowns and the rewards and the honors in heaven are for, it's like getting a congressional medal of honor that wasn't connected to any battlefield valor. Imagine if you saw a soldier wearing the congressional medal of honor. You you go up and you say, that's incredible. That's the highest honor our government can give. What is the next question you want to ask the soldier? What would you ask him? What was that? What was, what did you, what, what was, what was your, uh, what did you end up doing to, yeah you know yeah to deserve that or something like that yeah what's the story tell me the story tell me and that story is the honor the the ribbon and the medal 
and, and all that, that's just an honor. It's an emblem. What really matters is the history. What did the man do on the battlefield? Same in heavenly rewards. If there's no story, there's no glory. The story is the glory. And so therefore, how martyrs courageously laid down their lives for Christ so that others might, how Jim Elliott was willing to die so the Huarani Indians uh, could come to faith in Christ. That's the honor. If we forget all that, then how does he get honored in heaven for it? So uh, that's just some of, of many biblical proofs that I, I brought forward that show that we must remember our earthly lives in heaven. Yeah, that's that's really good because, I mean, what, what you're saying, just take it back to the fundamental level is, like there are things that we know and there's things that we don't know and we shouldn't worry about the things that we don't know yet because yet future it's yet future we're gonna we're gonna know we know paul says in part through i think it's a you probably have it memorized (laughs) through a a looking through a mirror you know so we only know it we only know in part and uh that's 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 a good thing because you know deuteronomy 29 29 tells us you know that we 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 couldn't handle all of these things. It's like you know um, we we couldn't we 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 show that all the time. I mean, look at all the other books that are out there, and people think that those are true, and yet they don't believe the Bible is true. So, Amen. Yeah. No, no, I, I absolutely think that that's true, and and my my feeling is <clears throat> like with rewards. Uh, I came to three C's that I always think of with rewards, and this is very memorable, and it stuck with me. Rewards are three aspects. There there are it's crowns commendations and capacity, those three. So crowns are emblems that God gives um, that that we wear on our person in some way in, in heaven that honor us and set us apart as unique compared to our brothers and sisters, crowns. And then uh, commendation is God praising us, such as well done, good and faithful servant, uh, praise from the Lord. Dave, what could be better than that? To have almighty God speak your name and say he is pleased with you. Jesus said in John chapter 12, my father will honor the one who serves me. Think about that. For the father to honor you, for the father to commend you, to speak words of praise, there should be nothing we want more than that in our lives. Mm. And then third, and this is the most perhaps controversial, but most powerful is capacity. The ability to understand and to appreciate the glory of God. It's a shared experience with God that we have when we step out in faith and we're courageous and do some things for the Lord. We then share that moment with him in a unique way that our other brothers and sisters don't. It's a shared experience where he says, uh, enter into the joy of your master. We share that, that capacity to appreciate God. None of us can completely comprehend God because he's an infinite being. But the more faithfully we serve God on earth, the more of God we will get in heaven, the closer to him and the more capacity for heavenly glory we'll have. So those are three things. And then beyond that is the concept of storing it up. Jesus said, store up treasure in heaven. So what that means is every day, Dave, you and I can store up more and more and more treasure in heaven. We can store up rewards. We can we we should be as rich as possible on Judgment Day. And my ministry as a pastor, my reason for writing this book is to help anyone, all of my brothers and sisters, be as rich as possible, as rich as possible in good works on Judgment Day for their own joy in heaven. Uh, we're not in competition against each other. We're here to help each other. So yeah. that's my goal. Yeah, that's that's really good. As you're talking, I'm just reminded of Ephesians two ten. God prepared, you know, good works. For for you you know actually if you think about that i mean we think about you know the the previous you know nine verses you know but god 
you know, at the right time, he saved us, you know, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, it wasn't of ourselves. But remember verse 10, God prepared something for you as a result of your salvation. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately, and I think it's the mo- actually the most encouraging thing ever. The things that God's prepared for me are not the same things that God's prepared for you. Like you were saying, like, like God we're not in competition with each other. We're not competing against each other. We're, mm-hmm. you know, if we have that, we have the same savior, we're united to Christ by faith and, and we're united to one another even. Amen. And so, you know, we, we, uh, what you have to do is, is God prepared for you. And that's, that's something that we should rejoice in. What God prepared for me, you should, you know, encourage me and we should spur one another on. And amen. Uh, Mutual love and care and concern is uh, absolutely. And and so here's the thing as a pastor, I'm getting my congregation ready to do their Ephesians 2.10 works this week. Like I'm getting them fired up for the Lord. I'm getting them biblically sound, learning theology, you know, just all of these things so they can go out there and do all their good works that I can't do. Only only they can do them. Furthermore, first Corinthians 12, I think it's verse 26 says when one part of the body is honored, the whole body is honored with it. So we're not in competition in heaven. When we get to heaven and some of our brothers and sisters have far more honors than we do because they suffered more and gave more and accomplished more. We're not going to be jealous of them. We're going to think they deserve it. We're going to see God's wisdom in giving them those honors. And we're going to be celebrating with them because we are part of one body. We'll be so thrilled they'll have those honors. The more we think like that now, the better. We want, we're not jealous of other pastors that, that do more things or people that write books that sell more or others that lead many more people to Christ or missionaries that do great things and we never did them. We want to think, hey, praise God. I just want to be faithful with what God's called me to do, but I'm excited for what God's called you to do as well. Amen, brother. Amen. Well, what, what can we learn about our resurrected bodies from Jesus' resurrected body depicted in scripture? Well, that's a great, great question. And uh, I also want to add, what can we learn about our resurrection bodies from 1 Corinthians 15 as well? Oh, because Oh, uh, boy. Both of those, you know, Jesus's body uh, is our pattern. Um, So it says in Philippians 3.21 that Christ will transform our lowly bodies and make them like his glorious body. So it's right to look at his body. And what do we learn? I think the best description you're going to get is in 1 Corinthians 15.42 to 44, where Paul contrasts the corpse uh, that is put in the ground with the body that's raised up out of the ground, like a seed and the plant that comes up out of it. The body that is sown and then the body that's raised. Sown, it's raised. It's sown in weakness, he says. It's raised in power. It's sown in in corruption. It's raised uh, incorruptible. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. And then this is my favorite one. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Now, Dave, what in the world a spiritual body is, I don't know. But Jesus' body was different, a different kind of body. You know, it just was able to do different things. So, uh, you know, pass through walls, things like that. And yet you could touch him. You could put your finger in the wounds. He ate some broiled fish. He said, touch me and see a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see, I have. So it's an actual physical body, but it's also a spiritual body. So you put it all together. Our resurrection bodies are going to be powerful. They're going to be glorious. They're going to be immortal and they're going to be spiritual. That's what we're going to get. But I go beyond that in my book uh, to talk about our resurrected minds and hearts as well. We're going to have resurrected brains, so to speak, a resurrected mental process. We will think better in heaven than we do on earth. 
We won't have muddled thinking. And so when I talk about an eternal history lesson, I can see some people saying, you know, that sounds boring. Why would we want to spend forever reading like the history of whatever? And, and then they, they start like imitating what it was like to be in, you know, medieval Chinese history, you know, unit uh, 302. And you're like, well, look, first of all, you're not going to be bored ever in heaven. Boredom is mental weakness. Was Jesus ever bored? Uh, you know, we will not be bored by anything God does. We will be in mentally engaged. Furthermore, as I argue, it's possible. I don't know for sure. I didn't want to speculate too much, but it's possible that God will be able to show us history, not merely tell us history. Imagine if you could actually see or even experience in some like virtual reality kind of thing, like a visionary experience, the Red Sea crossing. What would that be like to actually be with Israel, to move through the Red Sea, to actually be there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, to actually see what that was like in visions of the spirit? Now, the, I don't know that that'll happen, but I do know this. God transported the apostle John ahead of time from the island of Patmos to see what the new Jerusalem will look like in the future. Why couldn't he make the reverse trip to see how she was built by living stones from every tribe, language, people, and nation? I think we will be able to see because heaven is about seeing, not merely hearing. Earth is about hearing, not seeing. We hear, we don't see. But in heaven, we see. And so therefore, I can imagine God showing us his mighty works in the past. Now that would be pretty exciting. Be like movie night every night in heaven. How exciting would that be? That'd be that'd be awesome. That'd be wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. You know, when we read what is it, Revelation 20 and and you know, 21, we we even see people coming and going. So there's there's people that are, you know, doing whatever they're doing outside of, you know, the New Jerusalem. There's so there's some sort of commerce and some sort of, you know, yep. activity. You know, people are doing People aren't just people have this view of heaven, right? I mean, you both, you and I both know this, and and our listeners likely know this too. Where it's like, oh, I'm just gonna sing endless praises to to God, and and that that's probably tr true in our hearts because how could we not, right? We're in the presence of the 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 Lion and the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, but we're still gonna be doing some sort of activity, whether that's commerce or we have a job or some sort of activity and and revelation kind of gives us a some some hints of that you know coming yeah. uh, people coming and going to what degree do we know what we'll be doing i mean we don't no. you know so so we're not going to like you said we're not going to speculate about that but but there is some sort of activity happening yeah. where people are engaged in in some work and uh, right well i heard i heard one pastor who i really respect i mean i have the highest respect for this individual i won't say his name um because i think what he says about this is not accurate and so i don't want to you know dishonor him but i just wanted to zero in on the idea he said we're going to be so consumed with the glory of god looking at the actual face of god you know being able to look at his glory directly to see his face like it says in revelation 22 why would we ever tear our gaze away from that to look at anything lesser? Well, I tell you what, that sounds very pious. The problem I have with that is then why why did God make the new earth? Why will he have made the new earth if he doesn't want us to look at it? Yeah. Just did it as a hobby? I mean, the fact is the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I think he wants us to get out and explore it. Go out and look at it and see his glory. And here's the thing. We will look at lesser glory. I think there's a whole hierarchy of glory. Not everything is as glorious as everything else. Like, here's the thing. Do you think that God put his glory 
into a little purple wildflower like a violet? Is there the glory of God in a wildflower? Yeah. Is there glory of God in the only begotten son of God, Jesus? Yes. Are they equal glory? They are not. There is glory in the wildflower and there's glory in Jesus. There's just more glory in Jesus than there is in the wildflower and on down. There's a whole hierarchy of glory. So he wants us to see the smaller glory, the medium glory, and the great glory. He wants us to see it all and see him in it all. Does that make sense? So I think we will be out and about, we'll be active, and then we'll come together around the throne. But again, even that, if we see this bright, beautiful light flowing from the face of God, I still say that the attributes of God cannot be understood without seeing the actions of God. Like, think about what God said to Moses. I, you know, he says that, that I am the Lord. He says, gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Those are four attributes. Mm. You can't see that from looking at light coming from the throne. You have to see God actually do things in which he is gracious to a sinner Mm. or which he's compassionate to a sufferer or in which he's slow to anger to people who provoke him and annoy him. You actually have to see the history and say, wow, like, let's talk about you and me, Dave. Have we not provoked God to anger over the decades of our sinfulness, even once we've come to Christ. We have. He has been very patient with us, hasn't he? Amen. Very patient. When we get to heaven, we will find out how patient he was with us, even though we are not provoking him to anger anymore, even though we are not doing new bad things anymore. He's not being patient with us in heaven, but he was patient with us on earth. Wasn't he patient with Saul of Tarsus in all those years before he was converted? Wasn't he patient and didn't destroy him as he deserved, but was patient with him. We will not be able to celebrate the patience of God apart from the stories of God's patience. Does that make sense? We have to actually see the history in order to give him credit for being a patient God. Mm. Man, that's that's really, really, really good. Really good. You know, one of the more emotional issues uh, as it deals with heaven is knowing some of our loved ones won't be there because they sadly rejected Christ. You know, uh, what... What would you say to a believer who has family members who have died apart from Christ? Well, I think it's absolutely essential for us to realize that the rules of engagement now here on earth will be are different than the rules of engagement we'll have in eternity in heaven. They're just different. So right now, while people are still alive and we can do something for them, and they are on that road to destruction Jesus describes when he says, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many travel on it or enter through it. But small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. I believe that sorrow and anguish is completely appropriate while they live, while they live. Mm. So it motivates us to missions. It motivates us to evangelism. It motivates us to anguish prayer. It's, it's completely appropriate. It will have no place, however, for us in heaven. None. There will be no mourning in heaven. So we just have to see that there's just two different situations. All right. Let me give you an example. 
The parable Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember, there was a rich man who lived in purple and dined sumptuously day after day. And there was a poor man at his gates named Lazarus who, you know, was begging at his gates day after day. And he never got anything from Lazarus. And the dogs used to lick his wounds and all that. And he was he was miserable. Well, in the course of time, both of them died. And Lazarus went up to Abraham's side, heaven. And uh, the rich man went to hell to torment. And the rich man was in torment. And he saw Lazarus at Abraham's side. And he said, would you please send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and cool my tongue because I'm in anguish here in this torment. And Abraham said, you know, you need to remember my son. He called him son. Remember, son, that you had your good things while you lived and Lazarus had none. But now he's here with me and you're there in torment. Furthermore, there's a big chasm between us and no one can cross over from either side to the other. Can't be done. Well, then can't you go at least go warn my brothers? that are still living like I I was so that they don't end up in this place. You know, they have Moses and the prophets, Abraham said, let them listen to them. No, said the rich man, but if someone should come back from the dead, they would listen. He said, no, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even if someone should come back from the dead. Anyway, that's the parable. Now, the question I want to ask is, is Abraham aware of the rich man's torment? Yes. Clearly, he talks about it. He said, you're in torment now. Does he seem shattered by it, bothered by it at all? No. There's no evidence at all that Abraham is concerned about it. Right. He's aware of it. Um, he says that basically you're getting what you deserved. And so you look at that and you're like, all right, I just don't think there is any place for heavenly grief over the dam. Again, I'm going to go logical here, just like I did with how much of our past lives that we will remember. When we are in heaven, will we be aware of the damned or will God hide it from us? And if we are aware of the damned, Will we grieve over them? And so if you just start working it through, you're going to end up, I think, in the place where we'll be fully aware and there will be no sorrow over it at all. Because again, Dave, how, what's the appropriate level of sorrow? When would you stop grieving? Seriously, when would you stop? W would we spend a third of our heavenly day grieving over the lost and then the two thirds celebrating and enjoying our time in heaven? That, that's absurd. That doesn't make any sense. So I believe that the grief and sorrow is for now, for the living. Now, if you ask about what about knowing that someone died apart from Christ, I think you just give those people to God. I don't think you speculate about them in heaven or hell. You just give them to God. And believe me, I have specific people that were in my life that I could name now, which I won't, that I just had to do that. When they died, I had no evidence that they came to Christ. They were very dear to me and there's nothing I can do for them. Now. And so I just entirely give them over to God. I trust that what God does is right in their case. Furthermore, the final verse of Isaiah, the last verse of that great vision, Isaiah 66 it says, they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. And the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched and they will be loathsome to all mankind. That's how Isaiah ends. Jesus quoted that the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched talking about hell. But Isaiah says they'll go out and look at those that are tormented. So we will be actually very aware of the damned and think that they are getting what they justly deserve. We will actually celebrate the justice of God because everything God does is right. God is not embarrassed about hell. And why would we know more about hell now than what we will know in heaven? That makes no sense. We do know about hell now, now because Jesus taught it to us. And yet I do not believe that there will be any grief. There cannot be any grief because Revelation 21 4 says no more death, mourning, crying or pain. None. So I believe knowledge, but no grief. However, it sounds cold hearted now because people blend or mix the rules of engagement. They're just different times. 
Right now, if you know someone's lost in your family, a father, a mother, a brother, a friend, you should be crying over them. You should be grieved over them, as Paul was in Romans 9. Great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Dave, I'm just saying that's for now. It's not for heaven. How does heaven help us process grief and the loss of friends and loved ones, especially you know, as we're talking right around Thanksgiving and Christmas is right around the corner? Well, I think all of loss. I mean, I'm preaching through Job, and there are three great categories of loss in Job's life. Loss of his possessions, his wealth, loss of his loved ones, his children, and then loss of his health. All right. Well, guess what? On your deathbed, you will lose everything, all of it. You will lose all your earthly possessions. You will lose all of your earthly relationships and you will lose your earthly health. All of it. You will go through everything, not in the same way Job did, but those categories, you will experience that. But for us as Christians, we don't grieve over these losses because we believe that our heavenly portion is better than any any earthly possessions we ever had. We believe that our heavenly relationships are eternal. So if those loved ones were Christians, we will spend eternity with them in heaven. So my wife loves the Lord. She and I have a wonderful Christian marriage. I believe with all my heart, our best days of relationship are yet to come. They will be in heaven. Our most perfect unity will be in heaven. Though we will not be married in the earthly sense because procreation will be over, our relationship itself will be perfected in heaven. So, and I really believe the people who are special to us on earth, the Christian people who are special to us on earth will be special to us in heaven too. And we'll be able to share heaven together with them. So for me, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. We're going to see those people again. Mm. That's so good. It's such a reminder too. It actually, it may seem like, uh, Somebody might listen and be like, well, you know, that's not very compassionate. That's not very caring. But actually, if you think about it, um, it really is because we have Christ at all times. He we have him now. We have him, uh, you know, in heaven and Mm -hmm. he is sufficient in every everything. So if you're facing grief or loss, we're not minimizing the feelings that you have in any way. It's like what Paul Paul does in Philippians 4 when he says, don't be anxious about everything, but in everything by prayer, with supplication, with thanksgiving. He's not saying, oh, look, you're never going to be anxious. I mean, <laughs> you know, he knows that people are going to face uh, anxiety, but what he does is he redirects our anxiety. Um, in verse 5, he says the Lord is is near and so yeah. he frames everything around that. So anyway, he re we we're we were just redirecting your emotion, the emotions, the 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 pain, the the loss. And you know, I recently had a, a dear friend, mentor of mine, who meant so much to me. He he died about a month ago, and uh, mm-hmm. that that you know, I clicked send on a book, and this would be the kind of thing when I would text him, and boy, and I lost it. Um, you know, I, I preached my first sermon without, you know, texting him, hey, would you pray for me? And he, he would mm-hmm. text me back and ask how th- these are the kind of things that, you know, they hit us and it's emotional. And we have to remember in those moments, like what I'm saying, we have to redirect our emotions in, in a biblical way to yeah. remember the hope and the reality of it that we have in, in Christ. And yeah, absolutely. I don't I, I don't. I can't imagine why anybody would think that it doesn't involve compassion. I mean, we definitely mourn with those who mourn. I mean, I've been a pastor. I'm in my 24th year. How many times have I had to put an arm around somebody or they've had to put an arm around me? The pain we feel here on earth is real. And when someone has lived a fruitful, wonderful Christian life 
and then they're taken from us? I mean, what, what loss could there be that compares with that? Our lives are made poorer now. Earthly lives are now made, they're made poorer because that person is not there anymore. Do you remember how people would go out with the Apostle Paul, like in Acts 20, and they would kneel on the beach and pray. And it says what grieved them the most was a statement that they would never see him again in this world. I mean, that there's definitely tears there. There's no doubt that there's grief and sorrow. One of the greatest moments I've ever had as a pastor was a godly man saying goodbye to his wife when they took her off the respirator. And I had the privilege of being in the room. And they'd been married for 60 years. The love between them was genuine and powerful. And the husband knelt down over his wife, put his arm around her. She was not conscious. And he said, you know, it's hard to even say the words, but he said something like, you know, I loved you the day I met you. I love you the day I married you. I love you now. I'll see you soon. Goodbye. Kissed her. And within half an hour, she was gone. And I got to, I got to watch that as a pastor, I got to be there. And so I think heavenly hope fuels that ability to say goodbye in a healthy way. Um, but there's no minimization of the sorrow that he felt at losing her. So, you know, no, I, I think heavenly hope gives us the ability to walk through those things, not to deny the reality. We feel there's real pain, but there's joy on the other side of it. Yeah. Well, brother, I, I know that you have a have a ministry, a teaching ministry. Um, uh, so do you want to tell us about that and, and some of your other yeah. work online, either on social media or otherwise? Sure. Uh, all of the repository for my work, my sermons, uh, all of that is a ministry called twojourneys.org, www.twojourneys, twojourneys.org. Um, and so it's free. All the stuff there is, is it's a great website. And uh, I would urge all of your hero, hearers, Dave, to go to that site and take advantage of the transcripts and the articles and the stuff. It's all just there for the taking. So I would commend that. Well, there's a there's a lot that we could dive into and we've dived into quite a bit here. But as I always say, and it's true, we're only skimming the surface. So just as we just just as we wrap up, uh, would you give us a few takeaways, brother? Yeah. Number one takeaway is we're called on as Christians to be filled with hope. We live in a hopeless world. We live in a world surrounded by people who are without hope and without God in the world, says in Ephesians chapter two. And they're hopeless. Um, we should not be hopeless. We should be filled with heavenly hope. And that hope should radiate out of us. Like it should sparkle in our eyes and in our, our tone of voice and our demeanor. And especially when we're suffering, we go through ourselves, through cancer, or through other very, very hard trials. And non-Christians watch us. They will, as 1 Peter 3.15 says, ask us to give a reason for the hope that we so evidently have. But you have to have evident hope. So I would commend my book and beyond my book, Scriptural Meditation on Heaven. Fill your hearts every day with heavenly hope. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, set your minds and your hearts on things above and things to come. Then people will start asking you, how is it that you're so filled with joy day after day? I want to be like that. Mm, wonderful. Well, guys, we've been talking today with my friend Andy Davis about his book, The Glory Now Revealed, What We'll Discover About God in Heaven. I encourage you to go pick it up and uh, go check out his ministry as well. Uh, Andy, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed talking with you, brother. Dave, I enjoyed it too. I really did. Thank you, brother. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. 
If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.